He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Tsunamis, earthquakes, viruses, terrorists. In the past 200 years we've gone from 1 billion to 7.7 billion. So you've got to think about just the immensity of humanity. The smokes from the fires in Australia, you're really starting to see just how fragile things are. Nuclear missiles shooting country to country, like, would we be spared and left to fend for ourselves in this kind of wasteland? Yeah, I think about that. The new coronavirus has health authorities on high alert, but it's not the only threat hovering over humanity. Kia ora rā. I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to Insight. Global heating is continuing unchecked and the doomsday clock, the measure of the danger of human-made destruction, including nuclear war, is the closest it's ever been to midnight. It all makes New Zealand feel like a good place to be, isolated from the rest of the world at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. But is it really? Experts say threats like a catastrophic pandemic or nuclear or biological terrorism are small but real, and this country should be thinking about how it would cope if international trade was disrupted by a major event. In our garage, we've got like a whole bunch of like water bottles and like canned food and stuff, and we renew that every couple of years. Try and stay a bit self-sufficient at home with a garden and plenty of food supplies, but other than that, still relying on infrastructure to survive. I think we would survive. <laughs> you know, we're kind of a small country in a big world. So would we survive, or not? John Gerritsen has been investigating how self-sufficient New Zealand could be in the event of a global disaster. Well, I'm in the South Island overlooking the Southern Alps and it's mountainous areas like this that have attracted foreign billionaires buying pieces of New Zealand land, apparently as an insurance policy against catastrophe in the rest of the globe. But you have to wonder if they're right. Would New Zealand really be a good sanctuary? Could we feed ourselves, keep ourselves warm, look after one another? Or would it just turn into sort of a great big southern ocean trap with people competing for ever-decreasing amounts of resources. (coughs) Okay, diary entry one. Well, that happened fast. One day everything's fine and the next the whole world's going crazy. I just hope those foreign billionaires who bet on New Zealand as a safe haven were right. I wonder how long we can last cut off from the rest of the world. I don't want to end up eating the dog. It might sound like made-up disaster fiction, but some people are taking the question of New Zealand's survival in a global catastrophe very seriously. Basically, myself and my co-author, Nick Wilson, who's at the University of Otago, are very interested in uh, how New Zealand in particular, but the world generally, might be able to mitigate the impact of uh, what we call catastrophic risks, global catastrophic risks. Matt Boyd is an independent researcher and one of the authors of a paper published last year in an international journal that tracks this sort of thing, risk analysis. In it, they assessed which island nations would best serve as a lifeboat for humanity in the unlikely event of an international disaster. His co-author, Nick Wilson, from Otago University's Department of Public Health, says the study was prompted by the possibility of a novel and devastating pandemic, something which at the moment doesn't feel too theoretical. We're concerned about the increasing risk of pandemics, and uh, those pandemics 
could be uh, natural pandemics, like a repeat of the uh, 1918 influenza pandemic, but more concerningly is the rapid advance with biotechnology, which allows for various states or even terrorists to potentially in the future produce genetically engineered pandemics. Nick Wilson says in such an event, closing borders and isolating entire nations would be critical. The pair considered nine factors important for survival in that scenario, and Matt Boyd says New Zealand emerged as the second best bet as an island refuge for humanity, after Australia and ahead of Iceland. New Zealand has, compared to a lot of the islands, we looked at a relatively high uh, GDP per capita, which we used as a proxy for the sorts of resources and infrastructure that are likely to be in place. New Zealand produces more food than we can eat. We export a lot of uh, a lot of food. And uh, New Zealand has the potential to also be energy self-sufficient. Now, we do import some energy, but uh, we actually generate enough that if it was redistributed in the right way um, or used for the right purposes, we, we could be energy self-sufficient. And our uh, social and political structures are pretty stable. So at first glance, New Zealand would be a good sanctuary. But Matt Boyd and Nick Wilson say the next step is to look more closely at how self-sufficient New Zealand could actually be. Diary entry two. Well, this might be the last coffee I make for a while. The supermarket sold out in the panic buying last week and no more's come in. I'm a bit worried about the dog biscuit situation. Oh, Jessie, what are we going to do with you? The way things are going, my husband might have to go hunting this weekend. That might be the only way to make sure we've got some meat. So we're in an airlock here, so the doors won't open if the other door is open. So, okay. so but this one is fine, and we just do walk in the water. Yep. We'll do our best not to let it. But can we put on your hand sanitizer as well? OK. Julian Hayes is the head of the School of Food and Advanced Technology at Massey University. At the Riddit Centre on Massey's Palmerston North Campus, he told me New Zealand produces more than enough food to feed our population, but there are caveats. We can technically feed 20 million people, but it's not with every item that you would find in the supermarket. So we import a lot of food and a lot of specialty products. I think most people would understand that coffee and tea are tropical crops and we import nearly all of them. We do have a small tea production area up near Hamilton. Even bread wheat, which is a surprise to many people. In the South Island, we can grow some wheat. In the North Island, pretty much all of our wheat is imported from Australia. Julian Hayes says in the short term, New Zealanders would have to put up with a much blander diet. But in a long-term emergency, things would get tougher. This is the biggest challenge, is whilst we've identified that there's many products that we can grow that would produce an adequate diet, what we haven't even begun to think about is what are the inputs you need to actually produce that crop, and then how do you get it from an animal or a plant crop, if you, if you use that word, into something that someone can consume. And the amount of technology and the dependence on imported materials just goes up and up. Julian Hayes says a lot of the food produced in New Zealand depends heavily on imports. So let's just start in the field. So your animals need animal remedies, so, so medicinals to keep them going, to treat disease. Pretty much all of that is imported currently. If it's a crop that you're growing in the field, uh, we can do all right for nitrogen. If you need to change the soil pH, we have lime available in New Zealand. But when you need phosphorus and sulphur and potassium, Hundreds of thousands of tonnes of these are imported annually and used to raise the productivity of our landscape. 
And there's another potential problem. Our food system would grind to a halt without fossil fuels at the moment to allow us to um, transport products in good condition around this country, let alone exporting them to the rest of the world. We talk about peri-urban agriculture as the main way that we get food into our cities, um, but despite that, you're talking 100 kilometres a day that you have to ship your broccoli down to Wellington from Levin, let's say. Um, that's an awful hassle if you've got to rely on a horse. Diary entry three. OK, well, I'm sitting in my car, but we're not going anywhere. You just can't get petrol for love or money. We wanted to drive over the hill to see if we could get a deer, but if we do that, we'll use all the petrol in our car and then we're really stuck. Only essential services are getting any petrol. And nobody knows when normal supplies will resume. Motorways like this one stretching overhead carry thousands of vehicles a day, nearly all of them running on petrol or diesel. Ian Toomey reviewed the security of New Zealand's petroleum supply in 2017. He says there are plans for coping with emergencies. The oil companies have uh, internal plans for their situation and their customers and certainly the, the oil companies who supply the critical services know exactly what will, will happen in emergencies and the government itself has plans in terms of what to do and, and civil defence, obviously a lot of these things are civil defence so there's a whole emergency management and lifelines group and part of the thing with fuel is ensuring that the critical users like fire, police communications get the fuel as a priority customer. But Ian Toomey says those plans don't cover a closed borders global incident that would isolate New Zealand for an extended period. He says in that sort of scenario, New Zealand would have to fall back on its reserves. International agreements require stocks equivalent to 90 days usage, but in New Zealand's case, about 30 to 35 days of that oil is held in other countries. We don't stockpile anything in the country, it's all commercial stock, but obviously there's, the refinery has to operate and it, it has quite a lot of stock and crew. There's a lot of stock on the water and one is, uh, in terms of that's on ships coming to New Zealand, so you'd still have you know, 20 days supply that way. Within the country the stocks generally cover about 50 days. But that's 50 days of normal use. And Ian Toomey says in an emergency, fuel consumption could be restricted to those who really need it. In terms of essential services and, say, food distribution and some of those critical things that you... Survival, hospitals, possibly only around 20% of diesel demand and only 5 to 10% of normal petrol demand. People aren't doing their daily commute to work because, you know, their business is shut down. There's a lot of petrol saved. So that, that 50 to 60 days supply that we probably gonna ha would have in the country, would actually would they be able to spin that out for a fair while? They'd be able to spin that out for a, uh, a long time in an emergency situation like that, yes. Ian Toomey says New Zealand does produce its own oil, but very little of it is refined at the Marsden Point refinery in Northland. Refining New Zealand says it could, in an emergency, refine more New Zealand crude oils, but they would need to be mixed with heavier imported crudes, and the results would not be anywhere near enough to meet the usual demand for fuel. Diary entry four. OK, there's the paracetamol. I'm, I'm really starting to worry about the medical side of things. I'm all good, but I know people with diabetes and others with epilepsy. 
How long are their pills going to last? And what happens when they run out? I know the Ministry has a national reserve. Let's see what they've got. Hmm. Face masks? Body bags? <laughs> That's not very reassuring. Carolyn McElnay is the Director of Public Health and, reassuringly, she says there is a plan for keeping the health system running during a disaster. In fact, there are quite a few plans. The main planning that the Ministry has done in terms of more specific action plans is around influenza pandemic plan, but we've also got two other plans. One is around mass casualties, so that's when you get a, a lot of casualties happening and the, the overload that that has on a local district health board, for example. And also we've, we've then got a complex burns plan and we've seen that um, having to be activated most recently with the Fakaria White Island. Dr McElnay says a pandemic is the most likely global health disaster and yes, the response could involve closing the borders. But that's a last resort. When you talk about border closure, I think probably people think that that is complete lockdown for New Zealand. Even if we had a very brief period, and it is likely to be brief that you might lock it down for people movement, you're still going to have goods coming into the country. So I think it's highly unlikely that we would see a scenario of New Zealand being completely locked down and isolated from the rest of the world. I think that's really unsustainable. Carolyn McElnay says DHBs and the Ministry do maintain stockpiles, but mainly to deal with a worldwide outbreak of a virulent disease. We have got national reserve supplies, and that contains some antivirals, antibiotics. We hold some supplies of a, a basic vaccine that would give some protection, but we've really got just small supplies of that. We've also got um, masks and syringes and needles and equipment so that we could provide those essential medicines at the time and then start to plan for a vaccination programme, which would be the main thing that we'd want to do as a response to our pandemic. Dr McElnay says the health system would not cope well with long-term disruption to international trade. One of the challenges would be people who are on medication for long-term conditions and you, we would want to get supplies of that um, flowing uh, freely. I mean, people with diabetes, for example, or, or, or asthma. We have got supplies of those in the country. I don't know how much they're not part of the National Reserve as such. We are required as a country to hold a certain amount of all those medicines and so we wouldn't be able to sustain that unlikely scenario for a long time. I mean, I'm talking um, at, at the most we probably have about three months' supply. I'm John Gerritsen and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme exploring how New Zealand would fare in the face of a global catastrophe. The Health Ministry's reserves are for a pandemic, but Pharmac, the government's drug-buying agency, also requires its suppliers to keep reserves. Pharmac's Director of Operations, Lisa Williams, says their requirements are quite broad. Generally, what we oblige most suppliers of most medicines to do is to hold at least two months' worth of stock in New Zealand. And generally what we know is that the chain, so wholesalers, distributors and community pharmacies, probably have about another six weeks of stock. So at any one time, there's probably around three months' worth of stock in New Zealand of most medicines. Lisa Williams says for some items, Pharmac requires even more. 
what we do with some of our um, medicine suppliers for what we would say are more essential medicines, things like antibiotics or some vaccines uh, that you might use in response to a, an outbreak of a disease, we require a larger stockholding. So some of those we're requiring four to six months' worth of supply to be held in New Zealand. Lisa Williams says the vast majority of the medicines Pharmac subsidises are manufactured overseas. She says there are two companies making generic medicines here in New Zealand, but it would be difficult for them to start producing medicines they don't already make. It would depend whether or not your factory is one that makes a similar type of medicine. As I understand it, most of the production of generic medicines in New Zealand is tablet form. Um, we do have some um, um, compounding of liquid type medicines, just to put them in a really layman's term, but it would be difficult to change and you know you wouldn't have registration and quality approvals in New Zealand as well, so there would be some risk to that too. Diary entry five. Well, money doesn't go as far as it used to, that's for sure. Let's see. Milk's pretty cheap, but I couldn't afford coffee, even if there was some. And I'm not sure what's going to happen with the mortgage. I wonder if we're going to end up bartering. People started using money way before they start massive global trade like we have today. So there's no reason why money will, will stop functioning. Money Ilan is, Noy is a professor of economics at Victoria University of Wellington. His specialist area is the economics of disasters, though admittedly he's focused more on the aftermath of earthquakes and tsunamis than on the end of the world. Professor Noy says in an isolated New Zealand there would still be money, though we would have to figure out how to print new banknotes because currently they come to us from Canada. And what you could actually buy would change a lot. Obviously when we are cut off from the rest of the world, stuff that we import will become much more expensive because we'll find it much more difficult to get. Think pineapples. Pineapples will become incredibly expensive. On the other hand, other goods, think apples, uh, will become very cheap because we won't be able to export all our apples to the rest of the world, which we do on a massive scale. So we'll have a lot of apples here. Ilan Noy says a similar effect happened after the Canterbury earthquakes, when the price of building products rose faster in Christchurch than in other parts of the country and faster than other products. He says another blow after an international catastrophe would be job losses on a huge scale. Tourism will collapse, of course. So irrespective of whether we um, close borders or not, if, if the scenario is a pandemic, people will not travel. Mm -hmm. So if tourism collapses, then there's a lot of people who, whose job is no longer viable. And we saw that again in Christchurch in the earthquake because the tourism sector collapsed in Christchurch. In the case we're talking about, there will be a shift in, in sectors of activity, but it, it takes time. So if there's a sudden closing of the borders, then there will be a period of significant labour churning, which will be painful. Elan Noy says export industries like dairying would also be affected and the disruption would be enormous, requiring significant government support for the affected workers and their families. Which raises another problem. Where does the government find the funds to do this when the rest of the world is struggling with the same problems and we can't borrow from the rest of the world anymore? So we have very low government debt. We could, in, you know, in principle, for such events like we did in Christchurch, we can borrow from the rest of the world. In this case, that's no longer a viable strategy. So it's not clear where the resources that the government needs will come from. However, the collapse of international finance would be good news for some.
generally speaking, international debts are not enforceable. So um, you owe money to uh, an Australian bank, it's very difficult for them to enforce it. I mean, typically, you, you don't owe the money to an Australian bank, you owe the money to a, a New Zealand subsidiary of an Australian bank, which is a very different beast. But if you owe money to an Australian, then it's very difficult to enforce it over international borders. In the scenario you're speculating on, there is no going to be enforcement internationally. So actually, if you have a mortgage and it sits at an Australian bank, then you got lucky. Diary entry six. So I just heard on the radio that some billionaire who moved here to build a bolt hole a few years ago had his bunker broken into by the locals who took everything. I bet there's going to be a bit more of that. I wished we'd prepared a bit better for a disaster. Then we wouldn't have had that horrible situation with the dog. So there's some probably some key things. Toilet paper, there's a fair bit of that. There's a, a bunch of kind of just basic canned stuff. That's just the stuff we try and work through. Richard Hovey is showing me the stash of food and other essentials he's put down for a disaster like an earthquake. He's paid close attention to how Christchurch fared after its 2011 quake and also to studies of how Wellington is likely to be affected by a big shake. I do try and have a few cans of beer, hoping they will survive. That was one of the things that, again, came out of Christchurch, is that stuff in glass breaks. Uh, I do try and have a bit of coffee as well for the same reason that actually if there is something you know like the big earthquake, being able to make a coffee and have a beer and some toilet paper are some pretty key key niceties that you probably want to um, have in those first days. Though natural disasters are his main focus, Richard Hovey admits he also has an eye on potential global collapse. I'm assuming in my lifetime there will be global catastrophe um, and that... It will probably be kind of a bit of a domino effect thing. Uh, And I think that sort of thing is entirely foreseeable because we've got the just-in-time system, everything's so finely balanced. If you look at Venezuela, particularly listening to some of the people talking about it, they'll say, like three months ago, things were normal. And now I'm, you know, scavenging through rubbish bags and I've lost five kilograms. But Richard Hovey says he's not a prepper. I've never found anything which is under the heading of prepping which I've agreed with in in terms of what I think is likely and what I think I would personally align with. It's kind of the white alpha male, I've got the guns and the knives and I've got my, you know, workshop. And, and I don't know what you meant to survive. Like, OK, so you've got your bunker and you're shooting people and, you know, what are you surviving? What are you surviving for? If his neighbours come knocking, he won't be warning them off. Instead, he'll be sharing his toilet paper and maybe asking them to help grind the wheat. I don't see that you're going to sit there with a year's worth of food and I think things are going to be so fluid and unpredictable that you're probably better off having an attitude and a network and flexibility and some tools and some tradable skills and you know, a bicycle stuff like that, that will increase your chances of getting through. Not only are some individuals preparing for disaster, so too is the government. It has plans for fuel shortages, for a pandemic and for dealing with earthquakes. But my inquiries with government departments indicate no one is thinking in detail about how to cope with a more major global incident. 
The army told me to talk to the National Emergency Management Agency, formerly Civil Defence, which says that in any major emergency, there would be an appropriate and comprehensive all-of-government response. It sent a statement saying that it's planning for shortages of commodities like food and fuel as a standard part of emergency planning, although its focus is on keeping vital supply chains going. New Zealand takes an all-hazards approach, which gives us the flexibility to deal with a range of events, both foreseen and unforeseen. We're not in a position to speculate on how arrangements might play out in a hypothetical event, as it would very much depend on the circumstances. But the authors of the island prioritisation research, Nick Wilson and Matt Boyd, reckon the government should be doing a bit more than that. Professor Wilson says for a start it should develop a set of criteria which would automatically trigger border closure. That needs a lot of thought and a lot of careful planning so that the, the Prime Minister and Cabinet would go down a checklist and if certain criteria are met, the border is closed. No political argument between political parties. It would have to be a highly pre-designed process where the decision was clear about keep the border open or keep the border closed. And Professor Wilson says the government should go further still. If the borders had to be closed for a long time and New Zealand had to really be self-sufficient for a long time, we need to understand what the vulnerabilities are to things like the electrical grid, uh, the internet, those would be really critical things to maintain and maybe it is worthwhile having a small stockpile of critical components, for example, for the electrical grid to keep it working. Matt Boyd says a little bit of planning now could provide significant benefits in the future. I think having, uh, in the first instance, at least a small team of analysts looking into this sort of thing uh, is that sort of insurance policy. You know, uh, we can then start generating a plan. But unless we think about it ahead of time, you know, we're not really going to know what to do at the time. And even if we figure it out at the time, it may be too late. So we need to be prepared ahead of time for what we're going to do if, if these situations ever arise. Economist Ilan Noy is another who says it would be helpful to have a plan. You know, there is this, this saying, you know, Plans are useless, planning is everything. So, you know, really come up with sort of plans for what do we do and detailed sort of point-by-point steps and so on. It's probably not as useful. To really plan for a, you know, a two-year closing of the border seems to me to be excessive. But for a temporary closing of borders, we need to, we need to have some plans in place for that, yes, definitely. Whether New Zealand would be a good bolt hole after a global calamity is an open question. Current planning focuses on a pandemic or earthquake, and we would be okay for several months. But in a bigger event, the focus will eventually have to move from maintaining supply chains to ensuring local output of food, fuel and medicine. For now, that scenario remains more like the plot of a disaster movie. But some people are planning for it and perhaps New Zealand should do the same. Hmm, but I really do need to check if my quake supplies are sorted. Let's see. There's plenty of cans there, but I reckon we could do with more pet food. That programme was written and presented by John Gerritsen. You can listen to other programmes, including one on the 1918 pandemic, on the Insight webpage at rnz.co.nz forward slash insight. Next week on Insight, fresh water, and is there a willingness in rural communities and local authorities to get on board with the latest proposals? I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's all from Insight for today. 
great to have you listening and do join us again next time.